All right, this is InfoSec number 57, the mega edition. So we're starting out with Caitlin, who is mining space. Now, I wouldn't think there's anything in space, but... Well, you would be, you would be quite, quite incorrect about that. Um, so the, the Daily Star uh, has an article written by uh, Michael Moran uh, talking about how NASA is launching its first space mining company uh, to get moon dust. Uh, so the idea is that um, NASA wants more regolith. That's that's the actual name of, of moon dust um, uh, to study and figure out how to make things on the moon. Because once you're on the moon, shipping stuff up there is expensive. But if we understand regolith and figure out what we can do with it, and we can start building uh, stuff out of it, um, and there is a lot of stuff in regolith uh, that's suitable building materials. Uh, regolith is a lot like the Earth's crust, lots of uh, silicates. Um, so, you know, concrete, that kind of stuff. Um, but anyway, NASA wants a bunch of regolith uh, to study, and they've already paid this company um, a few cents <laughs> to fly up there, 10 cents, actually, a token payment of 10 cents. Uh, the company is um, uh, Lunar Outpost. So Lunar Outpost, NASA's paying Lunar Outpost to go up there uh, and grab uh, moon dust, which, which, like I said, is a very important uh, material for um, building you know, buildings and structures on the moon, as well as a good conductor for um, uh, aperture science portals. Moon dust. Moon dust, yes. That doesn't sound like it's in any way going to be worth flying to the moon to get. The thing is, you can't fly to the moon and then be like, okay, we got to figure out how to do the moon dust stuff now, like figure out what we can do with it. You got to, a lot of our missions, um, in space is all about figuring out how to do future missions. And this is one of those things, like we're not gonna get rich off moon dust. Moon dust is not, uh, does not contain a lot of valuable minerals. There are asteroids out there. They contain a ton of valuable minerals, so much yeah. so they would destroy our economy if we ever started mining them. Um, things like gold, uh, platinum, silver, stuff like that, which, we, which, we, which is very rare on earth, could be found in high abundances in certain asteroids. And mm -hmm. uh, the idea here is just to go to the moon, uh, get some samples in large amounts, uh, start mining samples and bring them back so we can start figuring out cool stuff to do with it. All right. So as usual, NASA stuff, I mean, science pretty much uh, for the sake of exploration, not really for an immediate practical benefit. No. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, that makes sense. All right. And Irvin has got the iPhone stuff. The iPhone saga continues. 25,000 people uh, signed a petition from the EFF asking Apple not to scan their phones. This is the, the continuation of the uh, the child um, CSAM thing mm -hmm. that's been going on. And Apple finally said that they will delay it. They will delay the, uh, the scanning on phones. They didn't say when they would do this, but they just said it's going to be delayed. Yeah, well, it is kind of a very strange thing that Apple was going to do this. Their whole thing was to be the super privacy advocate. So right. letting, letting the government scan your phone would be the opposite of that. And they seem to have finally figured that out. Yeah, they seem to finally figure it out. But of course, knowing uh, it is true that things like Facebook, Dropbox, and Google already do this. And we know that Apple does it too on iCloud. Yeah. The, the, the big problem has been happening. It's it happening on the device rather well, than in the cloud. 
Well, you know, I think most people, when they take a picture on their phone, they think nobody's seeing it except who they want to see it. And uh, even with an Android or something, it's true. You don't put it up in the cloud and you figure nobody's going to see it. Yeah. 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 All right. And then we get to the all important one that titles the episode. Alan has figured out what's going on with Trump supporters. And I would sure like to know. Uh, well, I don't think I have an answer exactly, but um, I do have a study here written by uh, Liliana Mason, Julie Ronsky, and John Kane, three academics, uh, titled Activating Animus, The Uniquely Social Roots of Trump Support. And this is a far more intelligent take on what's happening with Trump support in America, far more intelligent than the many uh, news pieces that we had to read over the past four years in which a journalist would fly out to fly over country hang out in a diner for a couple of hours, interview a handful of people, come home and then write an article for the coastal elites. And in this study, they basically took advantage of an ongoing longitudinal survey that started long before Trump became a major political figure, um, starting in 2011. And this study looked at people's attitudes towards what is termed outgroups. And this is where the uh, description of this study gets a little bit more complicated. What they did was, or what this original survey did in 2011 was uh, using online survey platforms, they interviewed thousands of people, or they rather they, they provided a questionnaire to thousands of Americans um, asking them questions pertinent to their attitudes towards, and let me just uh, find the complete list here. Actually, let me just read a quote. Respondents were asked to indicate their feelings toward four democratic aligned social groups in 2011, African-Americans, Hispanics, Muslims, gays, and lesbians. Respondents also indicated their feelings toward two Republican-aligned social groups in 2011, whites and Christians. And what they found was that the respondents' attitudes towards these different groups was highly predictive of their support or lack of support for Trump. And um, what they found is that people who ended up supporting Trump and were Republican linked were, uh, had very high animosity levels towards all those democratic linked groups, African-Americans, Hispanics, Muslims, and gays, and lesbians. So they're bigots, just what we all thought they were. Well, this is what it's coming down to, exactly. While supporters of uh, Democrats, i.e. not Trump supporters, did not show any animus towards whites and Christians, regardless of their own uh, religious and, and racial identity. Yeah. So that's really what it comes down to. I mean, it, it's a very lengthy explanation to a very simple conclusion is um, as uh, one of the authors, uh, or as the authors write in their paper, and I'll, I'll quote a, a long section here, uh, this research re reveals a wellspring of animus against marginalized groups in the United States that can be harnessed and activated for political gain. Trump's unique ability to do so 
is not the only cause for normative concern. Instead, we should take note that these attitudes exist across both parties and among nonpartisans. Though they may remain relatively latent when users, or rather when leaders and parties draw attention elsewhere, the right leader can activate these attitudes and fold them into voters' political judgments. Should America wish to become a fully multiracial democracy, it will need to reconcile with these hostile attitudes themselves. Yeah. So, so just, that's really what it comes down to is yeah. that uh, um, We're it's all essentially doing... racism and animus towards what, what is termed in political uh, science circles outgroups. And that um, people have these beliefs, had these beliefs long before Trump was elected, and that Trump has simply found a way to harness these beliefs and has folded that into the Republican Party today. So I think it is exactly what we most feared. It is the rise of the Nazis and Hitler in America, just like it was in the 30s in Germany. Well, yes, and it's a relatively small, well, I don't know how small a group it is, but it is of America, a apparently. Pardon? 30% of America, I think. Yes, yes. And it is a, a group that has come to dominate the Republican Party. And at one point, you know, people were calling this the alt-right or what have you, but you don't really hear that term much anymore because it's been mainstreamed into the Republican Party's identity. Yep. The extremists are now people like uh, uh, Cheney who oppose this. <laughs> yes. And what people often forget about American, uh, the, the American two-party system is that the two parties, the Republican and Democratic parties are really coalitions. Yeah. And that these coalitions are composed of, of different groups that are perhaps generally aligned on the liberal to conservative spectrum, but each of these groups has their own special interest, so to speak. And that that special interest may or may not really appeal to or fully appeal to or animate the other members of the coalition within the party. But, you know, if you get enough momentum behind a certain idea, it can still come to dominate a party. And because party identity has become such, um, such an important part of, of, of one's uh, ideological identity and, and cultural identity in America also, people tend to go along with it just because, well, that's what everyone else in the party is doing. Well, I think this helps explain another issue, which has sort of surprised me, which is the, the right just had a massive victory in Texas. They've ended abortion there, essentially. And Fox News is totally ignoring it. And I think that's the point. The same reason why the Republican Party has no platform anymore. The Trump voters don't care about policy at all. And they are not conservative at all. All they care about is hating minorities, which is the only thing Tucker Carlson ever pushes on his show. So the actual uh, triumph of right-wing policy is of no importance to them. And in fact, will probably do them more harm than good because their supporters aren't really on board with that. They're just here for the bigotry. And all this policy stuff is like not helping. Well, the part of the survey was looking at people's attitudes towards other Republican figures. And it turns out that Many of these Trump supporters are not really um, supporters of Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan or other traditional Republican Party figures. Yeah. Um, it's really about Trump. And now from there, it's, it's 
come to, you know, there's been this activation within the Republican Party as a whole, but it's not really support of any more specific uh, uh, other Republican candidates or party figures. No, I mean, that's that's a huge issue. That's what happened to Kevin McCarthy and um, and Lindsey Graham. They both tried to break away from Trump, and then they discovered that the Trump supporters will not follow any other Republican. And the only thing Republicans can do is wholly embrace Trump or abandon all hope of power for the next couple of decades, because Trump is it. And and that's why Trump raised a bunch of money and blocked the Republican Party from using his name on their fundraising, because funding Trump is completely different than funding the Republican Party. And, yeah, and it's... You know, oh, I was just going to say, in a way, that can be good, because at least that way we're not going to get stuck with Pence, which I was worried about. And now they're all mad at Pence. So but, uh, yeah, Pence is over. I mean, they wanted to hang yeah. him, and they haven't really moved much from that position. Yeah. Now, Pence is toast. Yeah, well, we, we're living in, uh, so far we're right on track with 1930s Germany. Uh, and they're now, they're now embracing violence. They're going to have another march on Washington in a few weeks. They're already talking about planning more violence. Uh, so far, I see us uh, going around the drain just like Germany for the same reason. Anyway, um, I got one about ransomware. It's on Twitter. This guy um, runs a company that helps people find their um, keys for ransomware and publishes free open source solutions and contacts companies. And people asked, how did you find out about all these criminals that have ransomware people? And he said, a real simple way. I opened up a um, Jabber account asking criminals to please talk to me about what they're doing. And it turns out that the criminals are splitting the factions and they hate each other and they betray each other and they're quite happy to rat out one another. <laughs> so they're telling me about what the other criminals are doing. So now he knows who's getting ransomware before the ransom notes come in and he can contact the company and warn them. And sometimes they'll even like leak the keys so you can decrypt the other guy's ransomware and stuff. This is what a lot of Brian Krebs stories are about too. One group of criminals betraying another group of criminals. So anyway, uh, that's working. It kind of reminds me a few years back when a company got hit by DDoS, I think it was GitHub, and they went on Twitter and said, oh, gee, guys, will you just knock it off? And they stopped, and they said, we found a new defense. If you just pass people, will you please knock it off? Sometimes that works. So anyway, um, that's a fun one. And then Liz has got, ah, uh, yes, TikTokers. Yeah, so um, for anybody that isn't aware, Texas passed a new uh, extremely restrictive abortion law stating that people are not allowed to get abortions after six weeks, which is pretty crazy because uh, most people aren't going to know they're pregnant before six weeks. So they're essentially precluding anyone who can't afford to leave the state from getting an abortion. And um, because of that, um, they have uh, they have also um, set up a really bizarre system where the state isn't enforcing this law. They set up a website where they're encouraging people to turn in uh, folks who have either gotten an abortion or abortion providers. And um, what could go wrong? Well, you know, it may surprise folks to learn that there are a lot of people that are not very cool with this new law because they realize uh, the horrific cultural um, and social implications of it. And so um, 
they have been flooding this uh, website with spam and, and it, it was done in a really stupid way where you fill out a web form and it also gives you the opportunity to upload uh, images as part of your evidence, which is bizarre because essentially the way this law sounds is that they've set it up like so that you citizens sue each other in a civil suit and if you win you get ten thousand dollars so um you know one thing that occurred to me is so basically some guy could rape a woman get her pregnant and then sue her for getting an abortion and win well there's already an online forum where they're discussing exactly that sort of insane no men who men who have there's already an online forum where men who have gotten women pregnant are now figuring out how to turn her in for getting an abortion and get and cash in on it too. Awesome. So at least uh, at least um, some people are are fighting back against this in, in a way that they are completely and totally abusing the uh, site where you're supposed to report people for this and uh, just uploading sort of hilarious spam to it where um, there was one person that uh, accused the governor of getting like 700 abortions. Um, and uh, they're, they're, they've been uploading like Shrek porn to the, um, to the image uh, section and stuff like that, which, I mean, it's just terrible that people are abusing this website in a way that it was not designed to be used. Yeah. What's even what's even more terrible is that in a way this site sort of circumvents the police, and the police you know aren't aren't too keen on that as well. And so these 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 criminals who are going out and defacing the site, they can pretty much do it with immunity because the police aren't going to go after them. It's mm-hmm. terrible. That's a real shame. That's a real shame. It would be terrible if people just continued to do that therefore rendering it completely useless yeah i mean they 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 um they they, it got to the point where they blocked any ip not from texas and and you know that's 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 good for them because you know you you don't want people like knowing about vpns or or going on to like the cloud and creating a server in texas and using that ip or going through, you know, people uh, in Texas who have IPs and, and creating proxy servers right. through them. You, you don't want people learning about that um, no. and, and exploiting that. Um, so you, you definitely don't want people starting a whole open source project where they have shared their uh, Python scripts um, and, uh, and uh, iOS shortcuts in order to comp- repeatedly hammer that site with more spam and not get banned. Well, you folks are definitely like into the positive public service messages today. <laughs> yeah, and, we live and in remember service. everything, remember everything is bigger in Texas. So if you can do all those things in Texas, it'll be bigger. There's that, yeah. All right, well, Caitlin can create disinformation for fifteen dollars. Yeah. So how much is it? So okay, the rest of the rest of the world.org. I never heard of this site before, but uh, they have an article uh, written by uh, uh, Victoria Elliott um, talking about how there was this campaign in, in Kenya called the Building Bridges Initiative, 
and it's being challenged by the courts or something. I, I don't have any idea what's going on in Kenya. Um, uh, I just I just know that's where all the lions and tigers are, and it's it's a fun place. But um, uh, um, anyway, so the there's these people supporting the Building Bridges Initiative, and they wanted to create a disinformation campaign. And the Mozilla Foundation started tracking this campaign. So they noticed something odd was going on and they started tracking it and gathering data. And they started talking to people. And it turns out that the people working on these disinformation campaigns are being paid about $15 a day. Um, and they're saying, well, great, you know, like, you know, in, in Kenya and, and other parts of the world where uh, money can be scarce, you know, $15 a day is a godsend, but they don't know where the money's coming from. It's all like dark money. I mean, it's, it's really shady. Um, but it, it goes to show just how, how cheap it is to create a disinformation campaign. You don't have to spend millions of dollars and, and hire these experts. You can go to third world countries, um, spend you know, a few hundred dollars and get a whole bunch of people all day tweeting about um, how you know, vaccines are, are going to cause um, 5G or something. You know, it's... Yeah. Yep, it used to be Mechanical Turk you went to for that. Yep. All right. And uh, Irvin's got Cloudflare's latest server. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, Cloudflare is doing some upgrades to their, their hardware. And this blog post is all about uh, why they chose to go with AMD yet again over Intel. It all comes down to power usage. They're looking for uh, things that, that can provide the power they need without using too much electricity. It's also ARM, right? Uh, this is not ARM. This is, oh. this is all about AMD. Oh, okay. AMD chip one, hands down in their point of view, of uh, how, much, how much electricity it's pulling in to produce the, the workload that they were testing. Yeah, power power efficiency, which I thought was going to push everyone towards ARM, but I guess not yet. I guess not yet, because uh, Cloudflare is going AMD yet again. There, there's some RAM upgrades. There's some disk drive changes. It's it's all there at the very bottom of the thing. There's a a chart that they have <clears throat> as they tried different loads and noticed that uh, the AMD chip, even with throwing it more. Uh, more work it didn't use more power yeah well that's good yeah I, this is really useful for hardware oriented types shows all the latest hardware improvements yep exactly yeah. all right and alan has got online hostility there's online hostility there's online hostility in droves uh another academic paper from Alexander Bohr, Michael Bang Peterson, two professors, titled The Psychology of Online Political Hostility, a Comprehensive Cross-National Test of the Mismatch Hypothesis, and another convoluted, rather involved study. Um, what it comes down to is this, the authors looked at um, people's behavior uh, in the US and Denmark and uh, their hypothesis was that people would behave differently online than in face-to-face -face interactions. This is what's been said for, for decades now, is that um, something about the internet makes people behave worse 
and that otherwise civil people become horrible human beings online. And what the authors found is that that's not actually the case, although they expected that to be the case. It's not the fact that people, the anonymity of the internet allows people to become more aggressive and more contemptible. Instead, they found that these people who are so awful online are also awful in person. I, I wondered that because of the rise of all the Karen videos, you know, of all these people behaving horribly in real life. I wonder if you just that we weren't aware of how bad they were in real life before. That, that's right. And what they do acknowledge is that the Internet certainly makes this more visible. But um, based on the survey questions that they pose to participants in both the U.S. and Denmark, these are uh, basically self-reported they determined that people who score highly on um, just the, the jerk index, if you will, tend to be poorly behaved in both online and face-to-face -face settings. And I'm sure they self-report that they're being completely reasonable and every, all the problems are other people's fault. <laughs> yes, along those lines. And so what they say also, and this has political consequences too, and I'll just quote here from their abstract. They say that we find that online political hostility reflects the behavior of individuals predisposed to be hostile in all, including offline context. Yet because their behavior is more likely to be witnessed on public online platforms, these are perceived to induce more hostility. And, and I think what also, happens is that, that the most extreme voices get amplified. Yes, that's right, that's right. Um, and it's also a, a personality trait they find in that um, this aggression, uh, quote, is not an accident triggered by unfortunate circumstances, but a strategy that they, the angry jerk people, employ to get what they want, including a feeling of status and dominance in online networks. And, and it, it, it's, it's apparently. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, it's not just that it's amplified because they're loud. Um, it's oftentimes amplified on purpose through campaigns. Um, so there's oftentimes very, uh, uh, there's a strategic element um, to getting things like white nationalist talking points um, out on like social media and stuff, where you would never, you know, see them if you're just walking down the street, but because the white nationalists know they can reach so many people, you know, there is a, there is an effort there. Uh, it's not just happenstance that you just see a bunch of racists online. I mean, there's, there's a will behind it. Well, yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with social acceptance. I mean, that's why before Trump, it seemed like there were very few white nationalists in America, but once it became socially acceptable to admit what you really think, it became clear that there were a ton of them. I, I mean, I think that's a, that's a very California attitude. Um, you know, in, in California, we, we don't deal with a whole bunch of white nationalists. I mean, they're out there, but they're in small numbers in the middle of the boondocks. And we don't, we don't. Apparently not. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, no, I mean, you're not going to find a whole bunch of rate of, you know, KKK members in the middle of San Francisco. I mean, actually the KKK was big in Richmond, right near yeah. San Francisco. Right. Right. I mean, they're uh, here. They're just, like, I mean, they're here, they're here, but it's still, it's not a big part of our culture. Something we, we, we very much shun. There are parts of the country though where the KKK is, you know, just out there and just about, you know, yeah. <laughs> they're not, you know, everyone knows it. And it's just, this, there's a bit of a culture shock between what we sort of view as normal here and sort of weird 
you know, bigots on the outskirts of our society versus what's considered normal in places like Alabama um, and Georgia, where, you know, it can be very frightening to see, you know, the, the bigotry on display. Well, it's suppressed here. They're like gay people in the closet. I mean, my friends who talked to blue collar workers in San Francisco said all through the Obama years, they're completely racist right here. It's just that they can't say so openly because there's a social sanction. I think, thank goodness for that social sanction. You know, I, on the one hand, I, I don't like the fact that, that these social sanctions hide these bigots because it is a problem and it's very easy to ignore if they can't say that they're bigots. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, like, it's not something to be proud of. It really is something we need to sort of address as a society and try to figure out what to, how to get rid of these, these people. That would be nice, but I think uh, the whole world has been struggling with it for centuries. Nobody has much of a good cure. Anyway, um, all right. And so this is this Juniper story that got a lot of attention. A Bloomberg investigation, not done by anybody else, has discovered that a whole lot of things we suspected were exactly true. Juniper was hacked in 2015, which has been reported by other people and is apparently true. But nobody really knew how it happened. And what they said is, in the first place, the elliptic curve random number generator that Microsoft reported might have been backdoored by the NSA was really backdoored by the NSA. And the Chinese hacked into Juniper server to change the seed, the number from which all the random numbers are created, in order to poison the random number generator so they could predict the random numbers. And therefore, the government's backdoor that they put in encryption was exploited by China so they could break in encryption, which is a very nice story and reinforces a whole lot of things that a lot of us have suspected. But the problem is, this is just a Bloomberg investigation. And a few years ago, Bloomberg did the same thing. They claimed that there were secret hidden chips in the iPhones and the Cisco routers that the Chinese put in there that were spying on everybody, and it was 100% false. Everybody spent the next several months completely proving it wrong. And Bloomberg said, we're standing by what we said, we're going to have an internal investigation, which they never had, and they never had any reports of. So uh, somebody at Bloomberg is hell bent on manufacturing false security crises and blaming China for them, for some reason. And so I, the problem is, this would be nice if it's true. But this is a very impeached source on this topic. And I don't, I don't know uh, what's going on at Bloomberg. Maybe it's Michael Bloomberg himself is convinced that starting a war with China would benefit him economically or something. And he, but anyway, it, it's interesting. If there's actually any evidence or proof of this stuff, it, it might be significant. But uh, I'm very suspicious. Anyway, it is important if true. I do not know how it could possibly be verified by a third party, though. There's an internal Bloomberg investigation, just like the last one, that was 100% categorically false. (laughs) Anyway, um, then Elizabeth has got Lyft. Yeah, so uh, there was an interesting article in SFGate um, a couple days ago about how... um, there, so there are wildfires happening in, in um, Lake Tahoe right now, in South Lake Tahoe, and uh, they published a story um, showing, and they showed screenshots of this, saying that it was costing uh, $1,500 uh, for a, um, 
a, a Lyft XL, which is basically like an SUV where you can take uh, four or more people. Um, and uh, the, in their screenshot, their the regular rides were costing four hundred dollars, um, which is pretty wild. Uh, and then um, they uh, they eventually uh, turned off their surge pricing um, to get the price down um, to a more reasonable, normal two hundred dollars to take the same trip because it's, it's it is a long trip. Um, and. Uh, and and Uber didn't have any rides available at all. And I'm kind of torn on this because on one hand, yeah, I get it. That's pretty crazy. And you can't be gouging people in a crisis or emergency situation. On the other hand, these drivers are really risking their health and, uh, you know, and their vehicles to evacuate people. So I'm not entirely convinced that they shouldn't get more money for doing that you know hazard literal hazard pay i mean what could be more american than whatever the market will bear you raise the price right. as long as people right. are to pay it right or, right or why didn't lyft uh, give a bonus to the driver rather than making the customer pay the extra well, right well now you're just being communist but yeah, sure. But I mean, you know, if uh, it is a it is a definitely a boost for their company if they're the only ones offering um, that have rides available um, and they're charging that much money to, to get them. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, it's interesting to hear about. It certainly uh, gives them bad press to appear to be benefiting from a disaster, but that's kind yeah. of the whole point of surge pricing. Right. And, you know, if you uh, if you get an evacuation order and you have the means, get out. Yeah. Not yeah. everybody has the means to get out. But uh, if you're able to, don't wait around to see if it gets worse. Yep. Yep. All right. And uh, Caitlin has NASA upgrading the DSN. Yes, so more DSN upgrades um, have been going on, thankfully. Uh, so the website here, um, uh, Hindu, uh, oh, I cannot read this. I can't read the name of this. Hindustan Times. Hindustan Times, I guess. Somewhere in yeah. India, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so they have an article here um, by H. It's T-Tech, <laughs> um, but it's just going over that the DSN is still getting a lot of big upgrades here on the ground. Um, in particular, the uh, they just installed the Deep, uh, Deep Space Station 56, which is 34 meters wide antenna. Um, and that's going in Madrid, that went into Madrid. And then they also built, they also updated the DSN 43 antenna, um, which is like a 70 meter dish, I believe. Uh, so things are, are really, you know, being progressed in terms of, of what's going on with the DSN linkages here on Earth. It's, it's, and the reason I bring this up is because it's looking like the DSN is going to be sort of like the de facto network in the future. Like once we move on from the internet, uh, we're probably going to be using technology from the DSN um, because the internet was, of course, designed strictly for Earth. And as we're sort of moving as a society into places beyond, like I was recently talking about building moon bases 
out of Regolith. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to be doing a lot of our communications and networking over the DSN. And so it's good that's being updated. And by the way, this is actually how the internet started. It was not created as a you know, public service, like we're just going to have the internet one day. Uh, it started off as ARPANET, which was a linkage for, for government only. And just one day, uh, some senators, including um, what, Al Gore, <laughs> Um, it's, it's uh, decided that we should open it up uh, to the public, and that's how we got our internet. And I think the same is going to happen one day for the DSN. It's it's going to be opened up to everyone. But um, yeah, it's just good that it's getting updated and and it's going strong. And you know, it's also a good case of of international cooperation because um, as many of you probably already know, uh, the DSN stations are located on Earth at 120 degrees apart, so you always get sort of a communication at any time, you know, regardless um, of the time of day. And so in order to do that, we have uh, the, our main DSN stations are in Goldstone, California, uh, Madrid, Spain, and somewhere in Australia, and I always forget the name in Australia, but the three countries work together to communicate uh, deep space communications. Oh, good. All right. And then we got Irvin with a cable bill for 10. Um, you should always be checking your bills. Um, this old guy did not check his bill and was getting billed for some naughty stuff. <clears throat> and uh, Spectrum was just labeling it as 10. Didn't know. Didn't realize what that was until he started asking questions and Spectrum said, oh, you should have told us when you first saw it in the bill, but TEN doesn't really bring any signs of, uh, like, what is this? Seems very innocuous, which was the whole point. Even though there is a law that, that passed that said that all ISPs should be more clear in their billing, you know, they still find ways around that and charge you extra for things you did not ask for. Yeah, that's called slamming. Slam you into a service you didn't ask for and then bill you for it. Phone yep. company's been doing it forever. Yep, yep, yep. So uh, keep an eye on your bills. And 10 is the erotic networks. Yes. Yep. All right. And Alan has got the, uh, put, leaving your cell phone on, on the airplane. Uh, some months ago, I had a story about how the U.S. military has been testing GPS spoofing and how that has been screwing up commercial flights, uh, especially in Western U.S. Right. The point that there have been a few um, not near accidents, but where navigation of planes was really seriously thrown off. And now the, uh, the IEEE, uh, and their, their publication, The Spectrum, have an exclusive story on how the FAA is now conducting investigations into uh, how perhaps leaving your cell phone on can actually improve security uh, and improve navigation on flights. Now, this is not for commercial flights. This testing currently is being done on only private light aircraft. But the idea is that since GPS spoofing is a real thing, 
it's not only practiced by the US military, but uh, the technology is available on AliExpress for anyone who wants to pay about $30 and is willing to potentially get uh, in trouble. Um, the, the idea is that by using the cell phone, it's possible to provide a sanity check to GPS information. It is very easy to spoof GPS information because the signals from the GPS satellites are so weak. And so if you instead install an app, which is what's going on here, then that app can basically perform uh, some triangulation based on distance from cell phone towers. And so this is a, this is a study being run, being funded by the FAA and is being run by the MITRE Corporation, which of course is a big name in the cybersecurity world too. Uh, but they also have a Center for Advanced Aviation Systems Development. And it's a very straightforward, simple test where they're going to different locations over different terrains, flying over different terrains and flying at different altitudes, running this app and using the cell phone tower data to verify the GPS data. And so um, this is probably not going to be applied in a commercial context. It's unlikely that people will be encouraged to turn their phones on while flying, but for uh, smaller uh, private pilots and maybe even pilots in commercial flights in the future, it will be possible to use perhaps a cell phone app as a sanity check to the GPS. Yeah, that sounds good. So, so just as an addendum, um, a lot of people already know that there's an airplane mode on their phones. And I think there's a common misconception about why that airplane mode exists. Uh, so a lot of people think that the airplane mode, and I thought this for a long time too, was to prevent the radio transmissions from the phone to interfere with the avionics on the, on the aircraft. And that's actually not why it exists. Uh, the avionics on the aircraft are not gonna be affected by your cell phone transmissions. Um, the reason the airplane mode exists is because when you are flying up in the air, you basically have a direct line of sight to a whole bunch of cell phone towers on the, on the ground, and you're moving at like, um, you know, 200, 300 kilometers per hour. And, uh, you know, the cell phone towers just cannot handle that. Um, and so it's really protection more of the ground equipment, the cell phone towers, stuff like that. Um, and, and to make things even more, more annoying is that the modern cell phone towers could absolutely handle, um, you know, cell phones in the, in the, uh, in the air. Um, but the earlier ones just couldn't because they just weren't advanced enough to figure out what was going on when you had uh, cell signals suddenly flying by at like 200 kilometers per hour. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, that, that's why it exists. So there's nothing, if you, if you do end up using cell, cellular transmissions in an aircraft, it's not going to like cause the airplane to crash or mess up the communications or the, you know, VFO stuff. I mean, it's, you're all good. It but. does, it does, uh, airplane mode does help you conserve battery though, also because it's not going to be continually trying to connect to those towers. Yeah. yeah. All right. Anyway, I, I found an article from uh, CrowdStrike talking about malware analysis, and they say it's now frequent in security operation centers that they need a malware analyst there, and they need to be able to do open source intelligence, 
and figure out what the malware is doing, which I'm glad to see, because when I started teaching malware analysis a few years ago, it was seen as sort of an esoteric uh, side activity that very few pudents would actually need to get a job. But now I'm hearing from recruiters, they really want people to do malware analysis. So um, that's good. We've been teaching it for a while and uh, I really like it. It's sort of fun and technical. You get into the guts of windows and stuff, but uh, I feel better about teaching it to students now that I know they can really get a job with it. You know, Cabrillo has uh, been telling me no, that I can't make that type of class because it's too far out. I know and that was true apparently like five or 10 years ago, but not anymore. Yeah, these people that are that make these broad pronunciations about what we can and can't teach are so out of touch. They just don't stay current to the industry at all, but still continue to make these um, issue these edicts. You know, mm-hmm. uh, colleges have a huge problem with being way behind, like ten or more years behind industry in this field. Yeah. It's ridiculous. That's why I remember one thing that will really ruin your life in college is when you go to DEF CON or participate in CTFs and find out how your material is so far behind what industry people expect you to know. Yeah, it'd be cool if, you know, there were, were some new and visionary college that recognize the fact that we were in the 21st century and, you know, uh, encouraged their uh, instructors to stay current and then teach those current topics to their students to better position them in the job market. But I know that's a crazy and radical thing to say. Well, that's SANS. But SANS, you have to be working full-time in the field and teach on the side, which I think is what you'd have to do because it's a lot of work to stay current. And you can't really expect like an average community college instructor to stay current. They don't have time for training. There are no resources for training and stuff. It's, it's Yeah, and I think that's part of the broken model. I mean, and it's not just, it isn't even just colleges. You know, some, some of our, our bigger universities who don't have as much of an excuse not to invest in um, professional development for their instructors, but the system is just so broken and top-heavy and profit-driven now that um, that's kind of the, the, the quality of instruction has, has really been um, deprioritized at so many schools and, and making sure that your uh, faculty have opportunities to stay current, do meaningful research, um, you know, go go to conferences, get continuing education and training um, are just really kind of falling by the wayside. Yeah, those, those are foreign concepts, Liz. <laughs> I know. I'm I know it's my prize college degrees still have the reputation of being so valuable, and they affect your career so much because increasingly in technical fields, it's not clear to me that college degrees are worth much. But apparently, the overall maturity or something is what people value. So you yeah. might be teaching them Latin or something. Oddly enough, I think I think part of it is just I think part of it is a, a, a status symbol and easy easy HR filter. Um, another part of it is I do think that there are some things that can be useful, and and one of them, strangely enough, is writing because um, I think that a lot a lot of uh, technical careers are much more heavily, have a much more heavy focus on 
uh, writing and communication and presentation skills than we often consider or, uh, or, or give those roles credit for, I guess I should say, because we oftentimes get so happy so heavily wrapped up in the in the technical stuff and and you know one of the other issues that we have is that um you know the longer that i spend in in adult technical education the more i realize that it's a constant push to get um college and university administrators to understand that these classes are about obsolete as soon as you publish them and in technical courses Teachers really need to have the um, time, uh, bandwidth, and resources to continuously update this stuff uh, as, as the landscape of the industry is changing. You can't just make a technical course and then um, let it sit for 20 years and expect it's still going to be relevant like you might be able to with a, a 19th century English literature course. Yeah, well, I think the most important thing is probably partnership with industry, where you have real industry people hiring people and internships and visiting speakers and stuff. Yeah, and and you're and and you're making sure that your curricula are informed by. Uh, in and she's gone. To the extent that you know you're teaching. Oh. About yeah, yep. Your internet is cutting away your sentences again. That'll happen out here in the country. Come on, Elon Musk, get me some Starlink. That's right. All right. And Liz has got uh, this person who nuked 21 gigs of data. If you're in it. Yes. Yeah. So this credit union employee um, got fired and, from her job and she was working remotely uh, for, for some um, credit union in New York state. And uh they didn't revoke her access for like two days. And so she decided she was gonna get some revenge and went in and deleted a ton of sensitive data on their shared drive. Um, but you know, what would be obvious? Doesn't it record who logged in? I mean, you can't cover your tracks if you're using your own credentials. Clearly, it, you no, know, she it does record your track, but also, she, you know, if only she'd been one of Sam's students, because Sam gives the excellent advice, you know, if, if you're going to go committing commute computer crimes, don't confess to them on digital media and incriminate yourself. And she did. She texted a friend. Oh, I, I, uh, they didn't revoke my access, so I deleted the, the P drive. Um, you know, generally, and, and, and as if that weren't specific enough, then she wrote, I deleted their shared network documents. So, you know, if you are going to go com committing commuter, computer crimes, don't incriminate yourself. But uh, I thought it was one of the kind of quotes that from the story that stood out was um, from a guy at the FBI who said, uh, uh, her petty revenge not only created a huge security risk for the bank, but also customers depending on paperwork and approvals to pay for their homes, which is true. But my main issue was the first part of that sentence. 
I don't think she created the big security risk for the bank. I think that the bank did and that the uh, third party firm that they had uh, contracted with to um, revoke the employee cr credentials created a huge security risk. P you know, and I see this a lot with companies, they don't pay much attention to their onboarding and offboarding uh, procedures. And that causes a ton of problems. And then a lot of times, and, and this has even happened, um, this has even happened at companies where, for example, I, one company I worked at that shall not be named uh, would revoke creds to like corporate emails and uh, Slack and stuff like that. But after you parted company with this ways with this company, you still had access to all of the AWS logins. Uh, what could go wrong to all of the code repos? What could go wrong? Stuff like that where you basically could wreak havoc but they don't pay any attention to that stuff. Well, that's the big issue these days of sprawl. You're sprawled over all these services and you don't even really know how many services you're using or where your stuff is. Yeah, and you know, you'll have managers that have you do idiotic stuff. Like I was at another organization that will not be named and the um, CTO told me to set up um, organizational resource using my own private phone number for 2FA. Oh, there you what go. could go wrong? Yeah. I know that happened at the college. They bought a bunch of iPads and a student configured them to go to that student's iCloud and then they left. And now we can't mm -hmm. use them. Like, wait, what? <laughs> I know. And we tried a million different things to get those unlocked, including talking to Apple and they said, oh, sure, we can do that for you as long as you have the receipts. And we're like, have the receipts. I don't know if there ever was one. Yep. Yeah, I actually got in one of them by getting a receipt and taking it to the Apple store. Yeah, well. The moral of the story is that that bank should have hired us. Well, yeah, I mean, remember, this was my job when I worked at my escrow agency. They would call me and say, we're about to fire this person. Well, I didn't put it that way. And they would make them take a long walk to the back room to get fired. But before that happened, they would tell me to freeze their account. Right. Which is what you should do. Mm -hmm. And then they would fire you. And then they would have an executive walk with you to your desk and get a box and stick all your stuff in the box and make sure you're not taking anything you shouldn't take. And then shove you out the door, watching to make sure you didn't do anything bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, but it was simpler then. There weren't any cloud services, so we didn't have the issue that Liz was talking about. Anyway, well, that's it for this one. And being Friday, I think we'll be back on Tuesday.